0: I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray once more. Father, this is your word. Help us not to trifle with it or take it lightly. Father, minister to us now. Give us eyes to see. Guard us from error. Father, by all means, through your Spirit, affect us. Effect us with your word and your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the last time we were in Hebrews was January 6th. And that Sunday, we worked our way through chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, in which the author asked his hearers and his readers to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the particular thing that he wanted us to consider about Jesus is Jesus' faithfulness. Jesus' faithfulness. His faithfulness to His Father, God. And in His unique style, the way that the author demonstrated and illustrated the faithfulness of Jesus was by comparing Jesus to the ultra-faithful, Moses Moses was faithful in the calling God gave him in his time to guide and guard the household of God. Moses was faithful in all God's house, says the author of Hebrews. He was a gloriously faithful servant of God, was Moses. But Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses himself was in the household of God. Jesus built it. Moses was a wonderful servant in the household of God. Jesus is faithful over the household of God as a son, the very son of God, in fact, God himself. So the author is telling his hearers and his readers, telling us to consider this Jesus this son of God through whom God has spoken and provided deliverance from the just consequences of our sinful rebellion against God. And he's saying to them and to us, don't turn back from the son to the servant. Don't turn back from Jesus to Moses. Don't turn back from the new covenant which can save you to the old covenant which cannot. Don't turn back. Don't drift away. That's his message to them and us. And then at the end of verse 6, we see, we saw these remarkable words which we just barely touched on back on January 6th. The end of verse 6. And we are his house. If indeed We hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So, those who are truly in God's house by His grace are those who hope in God and they hold fast to the end, being confident in the hope of the Gospel, boasting only in Christ and in the cross all the way to the end. Such are the members of the household of God and only these. Is that you? Can you know? Test yourself this morning. Are you hoping in God right this very moment for salvation through Christ? And are you hoping this very moment on the sure promise of His sustaining grace? Is your confidence in God? Are you looking to God today for assurance and joy and peace? Is He the satisfaction of your heart? And we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope who is God in Christ. And then we have a therefore, at the beginning of verse 7, and more warnings, more exhortations to hold fast, and a massive illustration, an example of the kind of unfaithfulness that ultimately leads to disaster, proving that one was never a part of God's household in the first place. However good of a start a person may have had, However passionate of a profession the person may have made at the beginning. So we've set the table. And here's what I want to do this morning and the next few weeks. Today, uh, an expositional flyover, if you will. I'll walk through all of verses 7-19. through 19 of chapter 3. We'll we we'll try that this morning. And then next Sunday, and, and, and maybe the need for this will become more apparent as we go on this morning and, and certainly by next week. Next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll do a, a wider lens view of the relationship between our perseverance, that is, our holding fast to the end, which we must, And God's rock solid preservation of all that are His, losing not one. How do those things work together in the Bible and in the life of the Christian? So more of a topical, wider lens view on that next week. And then the Sunday after, the 17th, will still be in this section. And uh, we'll take a closer look at verses 12 through 15 of chapter 3, particularly 14. Actually, before that, it's 13. The truth that eternal security or assurance of salvation is a community project. Exhort one another. So that's the plan. So again today, an expositional a sort of verse by verse, at least section by section, fly over or through the whole of this text, verses 7 through 19. We'll take it in three big chunks, beginning with verses 7 through 11. So that's the first chunk. And we'll call it Psalm 95 and the example of Israel's unbelief. And I'll let you know when we switch gears and hit point two and point three and give you a title and everything. So Psalm 95 and the example of Israel's unbelief. This is verses 7 through 11, Hebrews 3. So the previous passage concluded with the exhortation of verse 6, right? We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Picking that up, in verses 7-11, through the author now confronts us with an example of what the opposite looks like. A warning from the time of the Exodus of what it looks like not to hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Let's read those verses again. He's quoting Psalm 95. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, just a little tidbit there, that's a recognition by a New Testament author that the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The scenario recalled here, is described in the book of Exodus. That's in the Old Testament. But you knew that already. Specifically, related in chapters 13 and 14 of Exodus. The people of Israel had been delivered from their bondage in Egypt, if you recall, with a great display of God's power. Pharaoh had pursued them then, but the Lord made a passage for them through the Red Sea, which then swallowed up the Egyptian army after. What the Israelites had just experienced was a miraculous delivery by means of the great power and might of the God of the universe and of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In chapter 16... Exodus, the Israelites arrived in the desert, across from the sea, and what did they do? They immediately started complaining. They grumbled against the leadership and guidance of Moses and Aaron. They complained against the provision and providence of the living God, plainly saying that they would have preferred to be back in Egypt Rather than where God had delivered them. Complaining, grumbling, ingratitude is not, are not becoming of people who claim the name of God. And that's what they were doing. Complaining, grumbling, ingratitude, and really what we have actually underneath all of that. Is unbelief. Instead of trusting the Lord to supply their needs, something He had clearly demonstrated already in great power and might, miracle upon miracle, provision upon provision, the Israelites complained against Him, their deliverer. And they kept on complaining until it turned into full-on rebellion against Moses. And by Exodus 17, Moses is exasperated with them, and the people are ready to stone him. And instead of striking them all down, God again graciously provided, sending Moses to strike a rock with his staff, and water came out from the rock to once again miraculously provide for these complaining, grumbling, ungrateful, ultimately unbelieving people. The other Old Testament passage reflected here is Numbers 14, Numbers 14, which records Israel's greatest revolt against the Lord. This was after God sent the 12 scouts or spies to spy out the promised land and Preparation for the nation's entry. The long and short of it is that only two of the scouts urged that they could take the land. That was Joshua and Caleb. Ten of the twelve reported that they believed the Israelites could not and should not take the land even though the Lord had promised it to them. Joshua pleaded with the people saying, do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Numbers 14, 8 and 9 fell on deaf ears. Didn't matter. The people revolted. They cried out that the very God who had delivered them from Egypt now planned to kill them in Canaan. They refused to obey, refused to go forth into the promised land, and even set out to stone Joshua and Caleb who had stood up against their unbelief. And that's what we have here. Unbelief. Sinful unbelief. And really, more properly, the chief sin, which is unbelief. And... God's wrath, not His discipline, His wrath was unleashed upon the unbelieving Israelite generation. And as quoted from Psalm 95, as recorded in our Hebrews 3.11, God declared that this rebellious generation of Israelites, the lot of them, the whole lot of unbelievers would not enter God's rest. Perhaps the next generation would believe, but not this one. They will die in the desert under the wrath of God, not in the promised land under the promises of God. So, what's the point? Fair question. I really do need a drink. It's not just for dramatic effect. (laughs) The author of Hebrews is demonstrating something. He's demonstrating an understanding of the Christian life that is actually quite common to the New Testament, but is to a great degree lost on us in modern American Christianity these days. Namely, comparing the exodus to the present life of the Christian. Comparing the exodus to the present life of faith. Think of the exodus and the subsequent testing in the desert as a picture, a metaphor. Now, it really did all happen. They're actual events. But they are, they're not just as a record of events, but to teach us who are in Christ alone, by faith alone, by God's grace alone. Like the Israelites. And here's where you get that metaphor type uh, illustrative sense. Like the Israelites, every person who has come to salvation in Christ has been delivered by God from the house of bondage. In our case, slavery to sin. Also, like Israel of old, we are headed toward a land of promise. But we're not there yet, are we? And here is the point that is relevant to our text. Just as the Israelites endured a, a passage of testing in the desert, so too is this present life a time of testing for Christians. And not all who begin well end well. Not all who begin in the company of the delivered by means of their confession Make it to the promised land. Some who profess belief flame out and crash in unbelief. And so, this is the time of testing, this time that we sojourn through the wilderness, this time of difficulty, sorrow, and pain. We aren't in the promised land, are we? But we're on the way. And God is disciplining, testing, even sifting. Today is the day of testing. And the day of resting is yet to come. And here's the thing with this testing in the wilderness. It reveals the realness of our profession of faith. Or the lack thereof. A.W. Arthur Walkington Pink said this a long time ago. He's dead now. But when he was living, he wrote this Quote, Testings reveal the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man. But it does manifest Him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely. But are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord? Or are we instead complacently resting in His temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it is not so much that we fail under it, it is that our habitual lack of leaning upon God Of daily walking in dependency upon Him is made evident. In other words, the testing reveals the realness of our profession of faith or lack thereof. So, what happens when a little discomfort comes your way, or a lot, or inconvenience, or your health goes away, or a spouse? Or a child suffers. Or even dies. Or a diagnosis comes. What happens to you? Our past profession of faith will be either proved or disproved by our response to the sufferings and trials in this journey through the wilderness. And so we have the challenge the exhortation of Hebrews 3.8, again which comes from Psalm 95. Do not harden your hearts. Trouble has come. Don't harden your heart. Like the Israelites in the rebellion. They fell away in unbelief. You focus on Jesus. Focus on all that God is for us in Jesus. Loving, merciful God. Deliverer, rescuer, Savior, friend. Consider Jesus. Don't turn back like that whole generation of Israelites in the desert. They didn't enter the rest of God. Neither will you if you deny Him too. Have you not seen the grace of God in your life? And in our life together? It's true. We haven't seen seas parted. Or plagues descend. Or water come from rocks. Have you? I haven't. But guess what? We've seen bigger ones. Bigger miracles. Water coming from a rock. That's small potatoes for God. More miraculous. A person born again. By the power of God. Turning from sin and turning to Him. Turning from a life of despair and addiction. To a life of freedom and victory and holiness. This is a grand miracle. And we see it again and again in our midst. Evidenced by changed lives, changed priorities, changed appetites. People opening their mouths not to the next drink or pill, but to praise God. And minister to one another. Miracle of grace after miracle of grace. Evidence after evidence of God's grace in the life of His People in the life of his church, the household of God. So now we should ask a question How can we avoid falling into the unfaithfulness of the Israelites? How can we avoid that, we who profess to believe today? And this is where the author of Hebrews turns next. And it's our second big point, second big section. It's 12 through 14, and we'll take it a verse at a time. And we might call this section How to Avoid the Unfaithfulness of the Israelites. First verse 12. We have an exhortation. That relates to ourselves. That is individually. Let's read verse 12 alone. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you. So that's where we get sort of that individual consideration. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart like the Israelites had. Leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers and sisters. Be incredibly careful such that you do not follow the unbelieving example of the Exodus generation. Take care, professing Christians, lest there be in any one of you a wicked, unbelieving heart which would necessarily mean that you would fall away from the God you had claimed to believe in. The threat to the individuals within the congregation is real. And please note the interplay. I think this can be confusing, but it's not. Please note the interplay between referring to the corporate body on the one hand and referring to individuals within it on the other. This explains why the author can speak with such confidence about the group as a whole. He he knows that the Lord has been at work. Just like I know, looking at you as a group. He knows that the Lord is working through the gospel of Christ and through his spirit in the group. There are evidences of God's grace in the body, so he can speak confidently that the Lord is saving people therein. But individuals within the body, they are in danger of apostasy, of falling away. So he strongly warns each member, professing member, to be on guard lest it be shown on the final day, that a true work of divine grace had not been done in their individual life. Take care, brothers, lest it turn out that one or some of you prove to be unbelievers and not believers, despite present confessions and appearances. Be sure, brothers, that you persevere, that you hold fast to the end, By following the models of faithfulness in the lives of Moses and Jesus. Not the model of unbelief and disobedience and final rebellion of that earlier exodus generation in the wilderness. Take care. How? Well, in lieu of stopping here to describe the whole of the New Testament's description of how to live the entire Christian life, the author wrote something helpful in Hebrews 2, verse 1, which we've considered before. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. The gospel. Lest we drift away from it. Take care. How? That's how. Pay much closer attention than you are. Now, second, verse 13. We have, we've just seen an exhortation that relates to to ourselves individually. And now we have this exhortation that relates to other professing Christians around us in the church. Verse 13 reads this way. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, I'm planning to devote a whole sermon to just that one verse in two weeks. But a briefish word this morning, I think, is appropriate. Here's John Calvin on this verse. Quote, As by nature we are prone to fall into evil, We have need of various helps to help us in the fear of God. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. The writer of Hebrews therefore wishes them to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into their hearts and by his falsehoods, lead them away from God. End quote. Exhort one another every day. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, I've been reminded this week that the, I hate doing this, but I think it's important here. The Greek word behind that English word, exhort, means To come alongside and to call out. To come alongside and call out. So, what is being prescribed here in the body of professing believers is that we are to come alongside one another daily, calling out to one another in all the various forms that are prescribed throughout the New Testament. That is, Encouragement, comfort, warning regarding the living of the whole Christian life. Just, in fact, as the author of Hebrews is modeling for us in his letter. And I'll add just one more bit before we move on. Promising that I'll come back to this with a whole sermon in two Sundays, Lord willing. Just this last bit before we move on. Christianity is not an individual, but a team endeavor. So if we do not know the nature of our fellow believers' struggles and trials, and if we do not share ours with them, then we will never be able to follow through with this command from Hebrews 3.13 nor the dozens of one another's throughout the New Testament. The result in that case would be that individual professing believers among us will be exposed and isolated, exposed to the guiles of the world and sin and Satan and isolated from the help that God aims to give them through the gathered body. Therefore, we are commanded to be watchful over ourselves and over one another, thereby doing all that we can to ensure, as far as it has to do with us, that none of us falls away from our profession of faith because of the deceitfulness of sin. As long as it is called today, which it is every day, We must watch out and exhort one another daily in this life in Christ for God's glory and our joy in Him. And now, we come to the remarkable verse 14. And we need to deal with a very serious point of doctrine here. One that will flow into next Sunday's sermon more topically. Namely, How to think about our need to persevere, to hold fast, to make it to the end, and what this all has to do with assurance of salvation. Verse 14 reads again, For we have come, for we have come to share in Christ. If indeed, if indeed, we hold our original confidence firm To the end. Now. Some will object. From the get go. That what I have said thus far. And how I'm reading these verses. Contradicts. The Bible's teaching concerning the eternal security of the believer. What they hear me saying. What you might hear me saying and what they might even be hearing the writer of Hebrews saying here is that we are saved if we hang on to the end. And that we can't know for sure today one way or the other. But that isn't the case. That's not what I'm saying. Nor the author of Hebrews. Because The truth is that we can neither save ourselves nor ultimately keep ourselves saved. The meaning is that continuance in the faith is the proof of the reality of true saving faith to begin with. Continuance in the faith to the end is the proof of the reality of of true saving faith to begin with. In verse 14, we have an if statement that very much sounds like the one we read in verse 6. So, so it's hard to deny this conditionality that the writer of Hebrews has here for us. Verse 14 reads again, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our Original confidence firm to the end. Now, it says we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. The original confidence from to the end. The condition is future. If indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. But the effect of the condition relates to the past. We have come to share in Christ if we hold fast to the end. So, it's clear that the point here is not hold fast to your confidence in order to become in the future a partaker of Christ. No. The point is rather Hold fast to your assurance, your confidence in the gospel in order to show or prove or give evidence that you are a partaker of Christ today. The writer of Hebrews does not believe that you can truly partake of Christ, share in His heavenly calling, be a part of God's household, and then lose that salvation. He does not believe that. In this he agrees with Paul in Romans 8 where Paul writes, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And all those whom he predestined, he also called. And all those whom he called, he also justified. And all the justified, he glorified. Every single one. No dropouts. And he certainly agrees with Jesus Himself who said so famously, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. That's John 6:37. And in John 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one and we have a divine double grip on all of Christ's own. And then the corresponding truth that we must come to terms with is this. If verse 14 says that we have come to share in Christ in the past, if indeed we hold our original confidence in the future to the end, then the conclusion we must draw if a person does not hold fast to the end is that the person was not a partaker of Christ in the past. Never was. It was never real. Not holding fast to our confidence in Christ does not make us lose our salvation. Rather, it shows that we were not truly saved in the first place. Because all who are truly born again by the power of God and therefore justified through faith necessarily make it to the end and are all glorified by the promise and power of God. The Apostle John wrote just this way in 1 John 2.19 he wrote there they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become evident plain that they all are not of us Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Brothers and sisters, if we hear His voice, we must do something now. Assurance of salvation is a precious thing. So precious and so necessary that we dare not dilute it with feelings of safety apart from transformed lives. Don't talk to me about eternal security apart from living, active faith today. And so we must examine ourselves as the Scriptures say. We must press on. We must enter by the narrow gate which very few do We must seek to bear fruit, knowing that it is the indispensable evidence of a person born again by the power of God, justified by faith, by God's grace. So there is a necessary vigilance and striving and pursuit and fighting in the Christian life, as we have seen here in Hebrews. And the author closes by simply reemphasizing the point Which is our third point, and really brief. Don't harden your hearts. Verses 15 through 19. We'll read those verses, and then a brief word, and we're done. Verse 15, as it is said today, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The wilderness generation of Israelites was excluded from God's promised rest because of rampant, unrepentant of unbelief leading to unfaithfulness and disobedience. And they fell under the just wrath of the Holy God. Don't be like them. That's the message of this text. But in the end now, even as we fight and press on and hold on, we must remember, we who claim Christ, we who confess Christ as Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, we must remember that we rest in great promises. We who believe and abide in His strength and by His grace. Promises like this. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 8-9. Paul, writing to Christians, tells them to wait for Jesus, quote, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then there's Philippians 1, 6. Paul, writing again, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1. Peter speaks of those who have been born again being kept by the power of God for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And lastly, even the author of Hebrews himself even with his warnings to hang on and persevere ends his letter with a benediction that i read often at the end of our services in which he clearly demonstrates his knowledge that for those who make it to the end god did it hebrews 13:20 20 through 21 reads this way now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, will we make it safely through this wilderness, all the way to the promised land ahead? We will. If we trust ourselves to Jesus, relying on the strength He gives to all of His pilgrim people, when we know we are His, when we know that we are in Christ by faith, by God's grace, we keep our eyes on Him and Him alone. He is all we need. He is the shepherd of His flock. And if we have heard His voice and are following Him, looking to Him in faith, Relying on His mighty power and lavish provision, we will surely find that Psalm 23 is true for us. Goodness and mercy we will find all the days of our lives and we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your word. And now as we, Father, spend a few moments contemplating the cross on which our Savior died, Father, move in our midst to make us, on the one hand, sorrowful at the great cost of our sin. And make us repenters even today. And yet, Father, on the other hand, give us great joy that the penalty and payment has been Paid by Jesus for all who believe. Father, minister us to us now as, as we consider the crucified and risen Christ. As we share in communion. In Jesus' name, Amen.